Welcome to the Beatles, the Bible, and Beyond podcast. I'm Eddie DeGarmo. I'm Ken Mansfield. And we're going to talk about the intersection of Jesus and music and how culture is shaped by these two powerful forces. Obviously, Jesus yes. is more powerful than the music. But we've got a lot of stories that we're going to tell and some history of our time in the music business. So, Apple Records yeah. started in 1968. It was started by the four Beatles. You were the U.S. manager. Right. Tell us about some of your early artists. Who were the Ivies? The Ivies actually was the band we thought were going to— Now, we thought they were going to be the next Beatles. I mean, the Beatles thought they were going to be the next Beatles, and everybody in the in the building, because every record label would say, we've got the next Beatles. We got, And we thought, well, we got the Beatles, and we have the next Beatles. <laughs> and the Ivies were— uh, you could tell the influence of McCartney on them in their harmonies and in their records. And when I got the first record that we were going to do, given to me to release, I heard that record. It was called Maybe Tomorrow. And I thought, this is a falling down smash. I had the pressing plant print 400,000 copies. Oh, wow. Because I thought when we send this thing out to the stations— and they feel the McCartney influence, and it's on Apple, that this thing is going to go gangbusters, and I'm going to have records in all the stores. You know, I mean, we're going to really back this thing big time. Well, it sold maybe 30,000 <laughs> copies, you know. I've had a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the only thing that saved my job, because that was really out of my—I was stepping outside of my responsibilities by putting so much stock in the field— the only thing that saved my job is the Beatles loved that, that their guy in America was so behind their records that they would do that. So that that took care of that. But um, we eventually changed their name to Badfinger. Oh. And I don't know if the Ivies was too sweet a name or and Badfinger <laughs> was kind of not naughty enough. You it, know? Was, it was pretty naughty for the day, <laughs> yeah. for sure. And uh, the combination of them really having some great material, uh, uh, something just clicked. And boy, they became one of, our, one of our really big bands. Now, we're a small label. Yeah, we're starting to pull off, you know, some pretty good uh, hits off that label with really unknown artists. Well, there was a lot of influence, for sure, in, in my listening to songs by Badfinger, like Day After Day, a lot yeah. of influence from the Beatles. I mean, yeah. it sounds like Harrison's even playing the guitar solo. I don't know if yeah. it was or not, but it sounded like it. And it sounds like a Paul McCartney arrangement. Right. Know? Great music. And, you know, sometimes repackaging things, it can click with yeah. the public. Yeah. Now, that was a pretty outrageous name, Badfinger, for, yeah. for the time. But it, did, but it did work. It was just slightly... Uh, not so bad that it wouldn't be accepted, and it made it sound cutting edge. But we had, uh, in our first four records we released, um, we had another artist, Mary Hopkin. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea, because in those days we had the category, we had rock stations, we had middle-of-the-road stations, or easy-listening music, they call them. We had R&B, we had country. It's kind of like four main categories. And the M-O-R MOR artist, or middle-of-the-road, easy-listening, were not usually necessarily your biggest artist unless it was an Andy Williams and that kind of a thing. And she just took off gangbusters for us. 
So we, re- we released four records to start with, and two of the four became a mammoth hit. As a record label, because you've had record labels, if 50% of your first four records are hits, that's a really good average. And you also, you guys signed uh, a U.S. artist, kind of still around today, named James Taylor. Yes. Now, there's an interesting story. I told you before uh, in our conversations uh, about Glenn Campbell, how, you know, we couldn't get people to buy his records. James Taylor was loved by everybody. He was a true artist. He had an incredible producer. Um, The radio stations played his record. Nobody would bring their 78 cents in and buy the record. Wow. We just couldn't sell. So when Peter left, when I left with Peter Asher, we both left with the MGM together. He took James with him, and he had no problem getting out of the contract with Apple because It just didn't work at Apple, so it worked later. Yeah. There are a lot of careers that way. I mean, you know, Elton John's first hit album was his third yeah. album. Yeah. He was Archibald, somebody, on the first two. Yeah. <laughs> we, so. had a, we had a really, a really cool roster, and it was exciting because um, the problem with having four bosses meant it was hard to keep things focused. But the good thing about Four Artists is you had so much different creative-type concepts, you know? Right. Because George was, like, into Billy Preston and brought that element in, uh, you know, and Paul would be into far, like, the the thingy-me-bob thing was... Paul just had this bigger, more pop thing about him that was so great. And he he was always pushing, right? Yeah. Paul was always pushing. To me, everything started with Paul, and then once things were started, it was right. Paul running it, you know. Yeah. And that did not to take away from the other guys, but he was just that way. Now, the head of Capital, Ron Cass, was your friend. He was the guy Apple, that brought yeah. you in at yeah. Apple. Yeah. In the meantime, the legendary manager of the Beatles, Brian Epstein, had passed away. Yes, he did. And there was a fellow named Alan Klein. Yeah. Tell me about that that came into Apple. The fellow named Alan Klein, yeah. Apple was a beautiful, just a such a fun place. And then Klein came in and he forced Cass out. And the way he got Cass out of there is he went to Yoko and said, Yoko, you're not really, you know, you're a talented person and you're not getting your your fair share of recognition here. Sure. And John, you know, and he got to John that way. So he got to them first. And then John talked George, you know, into bringing Klein in. And then Ringo always went along with, so he had three out of four. McCartney was never buying it, absolutely not. Didn't like anything about Klein. And Klein started getting rid of uh, artists and getting rid of people. And uh, he brought this accountant's attitude into a building that was really a free spirit. You know, we all loved each other. And now next thing you know, everything's kind of strange. I say in the building, because the Apple building was like... uh, this magic place. It was like five stories with all these different kind of people in there. And he took the heart out of Apple. So when he forced Cass out, I decided to, uh, uh, Cass offered me vice president of MGM. Cass went on to be president of MGM. And uh, he invited me to join him. I left and Peter Asher left. And uh, a guy named Mike Connor, who was head of publishing, so really a lot of guys that had to do with Apple important positions left because of Klein. 
Well, he and he managed now three of the Beatles, but he didn't manage Paul. Paul, no. But he, you know, divide and conquer is that's a strategy of, of people that exactly. have that, that have that mo. Exactly. That's how they do. That. He created a a situation that was a bad situation in the, in the company, and then because he created the bad situation, he was the guy that could come and solve it. Right. That's you know, right. That's exactly a problem. Yeah. yeah. There was a problem. So. so Ron Cass went to MGM. He wooed you to come over there, yeah. but you had another another interaction with Alan Klein when he when he tried to keep you at Apple yeah. because he thought that you were the leveler, if you will, yeah. and he came to see you in Los Angeles. I had already announced my resignation from Apple and uh Klein called and he said, I need to talk to you. And he flew in from London. Yeah. We met at the Beverly Hills. It seemed like everything in my meetings in my life happened at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Hotel California. I don't right? know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he said, uh, here's the deal. He said, I do not, do not know what you're making right now because Capital paid my salary for right. Apple. That was a part of the negotiation. He said, I, I do not know what you make. But starting with this conversation, you now make three times as much that you're making oh, wow. at the beginning of this conversation. Wow. He said, besides that, I will give you responsibilities. Uh, not only will you now be working with the Beatles, you'll be working with Donovan, and you'll be working with the Rolling Stones. And uh, so you've got what you had, and you've got more, and you've got more money. Now, I had a very emotional tie to Cass because I felt like he was my mentor. He was just such an incredible executive. And so... I went over to Cass's house in Beverly Hills that night, and I said, Ron, you know, I got a family, and there, there are business things, and uh, Klein has come to me and made me this offer. And just as a friend, I want to talk it through with you, you know, uh, because I trust your judgment. I know if you think it's better for me to accept it than to come with you, you'll tell me. And Cass looked at me. He said, Ken... I can't really advise you on that. I want you very much to come with me at MGM. You've already said you would. But let me just uh, give you one piece of advice. If you lay down with pigs, you get up dirty. Mm. Now, bam. What he said in a simple words, easy to understand, that Klein had a very bad reputation. Uh, in fact, when he came down the street, down the, we see, we came down the block from the Rolling Stones office and took over the Beatles, that he had already been accused of stealing $100 million. I don't know if it's real. I'm not saying he's a bad person, but he did have a lot of bad press about him at that time. And what Cass had told me, he said, uh, if you do go with him, you have, you're a young man, you have a long career ahead of you, you will always be known as Klein's the guy. And right. he said, is that what you want? Well, that's and, important, yeah. Uh, you're not going to ask me about the tennis match, are you? Well, I'd, I'd need to know about that because you made you made a deal with a guy that was pretty weird. Yeah. You were like, you know, let's play tennis, and if you win, I'll do what you say, and yeah. if I win, you do what I say. <laughs> I just Klein was the super negotiator. I mean, that's why he was so successful. He could just convince you. So I could, I meet Klein the next day, and I say, look, I'm not going to do it, and all that. And he just kept after me and kept after me. I said, and I'd noticed that Klein had a had carried a tennis racket with him from over to California. And I was uh, belonged to a country club and was winning some little local tournaments. I was, I was pretty good. And I was, Klein was this little round egg with, you know, just right. pale. He was always in his accountant's office. I said, look, at, I tell you what, 
let's do a tennis match. If you beat me, I'll come to work with you. So one yeah. tennis set. Yeah. Best, <laughs> best, set. best of six. <clears throat> and because uh, I thought, at least it'll stop. It's a deal, you know. We go out there that day, and I couldn't get the ball past him. Ah. Now, tennis players know that a, a set is six, you know, somebody has to get to six out of win six games. If the other person has five games, you got to get to seven. You got to beat them by two That's games. That's right, right. We played and played and played. I, I couldn't. Uh, anyway, I ended up win, beating him 15 to 13. Oh, That's my gosh. Set. And what I realized that, oh, and when the set got done, Klein just looked over, waved at me, and walked off. I never heard from him the rest of my life. Never spoke But again. Uh, the thing was, it wasn't a tennis match. It was a negotiation. Yeah. And Klein didn't. He did not lose negotiations. And he got beat, and when he got beat, you were out of his life. Oh, yeah. Uh, what yeah. you were saying, you're dead to me, right? <laughs> That's interesting. Well, glad you won. Yeah, uh, I do. So you went to MGM, and uh, you worked with Ron Cass, and you also worked with a, a kind of a, a local music icon here in Nashville named Mike Curb. Yes. Tell us. Now, you had an interesting relationship with Mike. Well, I did, because I had come there with Cass, and we were— you know, you and I have kind of this rebel thing. I could never be, I didn't like being part of the establishment. I liked what the Beatles were doing. I liked this against the grain thing and, you know, later becoming Waylon's producer. I liked that kind of living. And uh, Curb Community is very organized. He was a lieutenant governor of California. California. Yeah. And uh, he was uh, very anti-drugs and he was very, uh, you know, Donnie and Marie Osmond and, and this kind of thing. And uh, so... And he and I knew each other before because when I was starting to make my bones, he was this young kid over at Capitol that had a distribution deal with Curb Records. That's right. Yeah. So he was kind of looking up to me in a way in conversation and meetings we would have. Now all of a sudden, he's the president of a label I've been brought in to under somebody else I wanted to be there with. And people would say, well, gosh, Ken, you're a— you're kind of young to be the vice president of MGM, aren't you? And I said, well, I'm not young enough to be the president because Curb was like years younger than me. Yeah, you know? right, right. Anyway, uh, we got along fine, but uh, one day I just went to him and told him I wanted to go on my own. And uh, I told him how much it was going to cost to keep me, the expense of keeping me in, in my contract, my office, my my assistant and all this kind of stuff. And I said, it's going to cost you this much. If you'll give me half of this right now, I'll leave. Wow. And he did. And he did. Just yeah. like that. And uh, Well, you know, Mike Curb owned half of Lamb and Lion, which was yeah. the label that signed yeah. me to my first Christian yeah. deal. And now Mike Curb or Curb oh, Records owns, Legendary. Oh. owns Word Records. Oh, I know. You know, so he, <laughs> he keeps his hands in. The guy's a genius. He is a genius. genius. I actually kind of would maybe been wise to learn more from him. And what was interesting now, to tell you the kind of guy he is, then Andy Williams hires me to be president of his, of his CBS yeah. label. And in time, I came back to Curb and made a deal where we changed distribution systems of CBS to MGM. So I couldn't have disliked him too that much. That's or, right. Same yeah, because I was starting to see how this guy got things done after I left him more than I did when I was with him. Now tell us, I mean, this is an interesting one I'm going to ask you about because, you know, with, with all the different press bonanzas that seemed to happen for the Beatles, there was one that, that you just didn't know the truth about 
and it was the rumor about Paul is dead. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Well, I do too. And it virtually shut down the building. I mean, the phones, the problem for me was I was the actually the contact, the contact in America for the Beatles. So when this came down, that was the phone number. My, my office was the phone number to find out things about the Beatles. Maybe Nat Weiss in New York, who did the PR for them, and myself. And uh, it jammed the, the switchboards at Capitol. Did, didn't that come off of a, a backward masking thing that somebody played oh, a record there, yeah, backwards yeah, or something like that? There was like a that. thing where uh, one thing they pulled out was said, uh, Paul, in the mix, when they were getting their, their recording, Paul said, and you know this, he said, uh, he was too loud in the mix. He said, I'm Barry and John. In other words, I can't oh, hear wow. John's vocal or right, I can't hear. Right. So, I'm, you know, that kind of stuff. And the 25 IF on the Volkswagen that was parked outside the studio, they said that meant he'd be, he would be 25 if he, hadn't, if he hadn't had died. But you didn't know if he was actually passed away or not. No, but I figured it out. <laughs> Did you? Well, I had, uh, there was a uh, handwriting uh, an analysis guy with the police force in Chicago that was famous for being able to tell if, if hand signatures were real or faked. And I had stuff from Paul before he was dead. I had things that Paul had signed when he was dead, and I had things that Paul had signed after he was dead. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I had a spread of signatures on things. And so I took it to him, and he said, this is the same person before he was supposed to have died and after he was supposed wow. to be dead. So that I gave this information to the switchboard, and uh, I just stopped that. But it was it was crazy. It would have been crazy. So another legendary artist that you worked with at MGM, one of my favorites because he's you know got his break in music out of Memphis again. Yeah, Roy Orbison. Now Roy had, had had some tragedy in his life. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, it was horrible. Uh, in a short period of time, not only did he lose his wife uh, in a motorcycle accident, his uh, folks were watching his their kids. Forget which happened first, and. Uh, they it was a fire at the house and and he lost his kids and so i guess he kind of blamed his parents so not only it caused a problem with them so he lost his wife he lost his kids and he lost his parents kind of in a sequence of events in a short period of time and uh he just dropped out entirely so he was this uh vacant artist we had on m jim that was just incredible and he and I had some mutual things from before. So I went to Roy one day and I said, Roy, uh, I think it's time you gave it a shot again. And we were having our national convention in Miami next month. Why don't we put together a little band, come down and do a show for all the guys, you know, everybody from the label is in one place for, you know, a friendly crowd and just see how you feel about getting back on the stage and doing it again. So he did, and uh, it went really great. Wow. And something about that really bonded us together because it was a way that I pulled him out of something, you know, and uh, uh, it's just a great trust between us, and we had a really special relationship for years after that. Well, one of the great voices in, in uh, rock and roll, Roy Orbison. Oh, uh, yeah. Pretty serious starting up a record label. And if it would have just been a little record label you started up, but uh, 
man, uh, Forefront Records, in my recollection, and you start off with little acts like DC Talk. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, when we formed Forefront, there were there were four of us that yeah. initially were involved. It was myself and my partner, Dana Key, yeah. and uh, a producer friend of ours named Ron Griffin, and DeGarmo and Key's manager, a fellow named Dan Brock. Now, Dana, he didn't care for the record business too much, so he didn't last too long. But so he he got out pretty quick. Yeah. And uh, uh, Ron He was Griffin, a John Lennon of your group. <laughs> he was. He definitely was. And, and Dana was a ministry guy, and he just, he was not a business guy on that level and didn't want to be, and I respect that. So Forefront didn't appeal to him. And then Ron Griffin, he stayed for a year or two, and then he decided to depart too. But... When we started Forefront, you know, Ken, I didn't tell anybody that I had a record label for five years. What? I didn't want anybody to know. And How were you signing artists without? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. We would meet on the artist, and we would vote on who to sign and who not to sign. Mm -hmm. And my job, because my band was at the, the peak of our career yeah. in the beginning, 87, is I would tour the bands. And so you would what tour tour the bands? They would be our opening acts. Oh, okay, yeah. So DC Talk and, <laughs> and Audio Adrenaline, and and, the great way to build a new band. Yeah, right? and so we would take them on the road in the early years. Now, you know, it was at, we started the label in 1987, and it was really out of a heart. At that point in time, there really wasn't a label in Christian music that was focused on younger music. Yeah, you know. And we wanted to really focus on younger music because we felt like that it was a really fertile ground for really? the gospel, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we went and signed a rap group. And rap at that point hadn't popularized yet. Uh, Aerosmith had done their duet with Ron DMC. And even in the mainstream, that was about all that was yeah. going on in yeah. rap music. And DC Talk was a hybrid because they sang their choruses and they rapped their verses. And we thought that that was a real hit because in that point in time, singing songs in youth groups in America. Because, you know, and the, the mainstream has clubs to break bands. Yeah. Well, the, the Christian music has youth groups. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so if, if you can't tour the youth groups and yeah. get them singing your songs, it's, it's harder. Yeah. Harder to get the word out. So we felt like DC Talk could do that. But yeah, I didn't tell people that it might have been oh, yeah. four years. I didn't do that. I can't imagine starting a giant enterprise uh, without telling anybody. About I didn't. <laughs> I, didn't I just did it behind the scenes, yeah. and which is so kind of the antithesis wow. of the way that artists do labels today. They want everybody but to then know. when you had an act like that that you signed it. Well, rock. you know, it's, DC Talk toured with DeGarmo and Key for year and a half, maybe close to two years yeah. as an opening act. And over that period of time, they would leave the stage after they did their 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And I would peer around the curtain and instead of the crowd saying, D and K, D and K, D and K. <laughs> they were saying DC talk, DC talk, DC talk. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of took off. And, yeah. and you know, artists yeah. can have a life of their own. Yeah. And a, a, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, a kind of a legendary record guy named Jimmy Bowen. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, Bowen. He and I have history too. Yeah, and I was talking to Bowen about his experience with Garth Brooks. Um, you know, and it was so similar to our experience with DC Talk. It just took a life of its own, and yeah. it became 
so much bigger than any of us thought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were, I call, I call them a triple threat because not only could they write great songs, you got to be able to write great songs yes. or find great songs, yeah, right? And you got to be able to perform them well. But, you know, it doesn't hurt when you can take a nice picture. Yeah, you know okay. what I mean. Okay, and DC Talk can yeah. take a really good picture. Yeah, yeah, they look like little movie stars. So, it took off for us, and it was just a few years after that that you know I decided to walk away from DeGarmo and Key, which was a tough thing because we were doing really well but in wait the marketplace. Where was um? I've noticed your title of your book is A Rebel for God, and everything you're doing is kind of this rebel thing going through it, how you did things. But was DeGarmo and Key on forefront? or Yes, matter of speaking. You know, one of the the things that we were able to achieve, which is kind of unknown in the record business, we were the top-selling act at our label in 1985 when our record contract lapsed. At? At, at the time, it was called the Benson Company, which is a hundred-year-old label that's not even around yeah. anymore. They were the they were so one of the biggest ones. You've gone from high to Benson, or is there something in between? Lamb and Lion was in between. Oh, okay. And Lamb and Lion took me to Benson. Yeah. And uh, Pat wasn't happy with Benson. Mike Kerb wasn't happy with Benson. And the negotiating chip, because they had Debbie Boone. The negotiating chip for their them to leave the Benson Company was to leave DeGarmo and Key there. Oh, right? okay, yeah. So we we started recording for the Benson Company, which was a major player in Christian music. You know, they were arguably the biggest at that time, either them or Word. Uh, so, and Benson had a legendary, visionary kind of guy named Bob McKenzie that ran, ran the company, and he really poured a lot of resources into my band. And, you know, it was a good experience yeah. to be there. So, but our record company, uh, record contract had lapsed, and our attorney had this crazy idea about getting all of our masters and all of our songs returned to us hmm. as part of the negotiation for the new oh, deal. If he, and he pulled it off. If they only... Yeah. And they pulled it off. Wow. So Forefront housed all the DeGarmo and Key masters and all the DeGarmo and Key copyrights. Yeah. And the way that we funded that business in the early years was all the international deals. Yeah. You know, and that's what gave us the money to sign groups like DC Talk and Audio Adrenaline and Rebecca St. James and Code of Ethics and Skillet and See, Big Ten Revival. Such a roster. We had a crazy successful roster, but I I left D and K. I made my decision to walk away in 1992, yeah. and things were still really good in the marketplace for us. And but you know, Ken, I never wanted to be the old boxer that wrote it down. Yeah, and you no, know, I know you, that you know feeling, what I mean yeah. because everybody has their moment, right? And I'd had a long career. I'd had a 17 year career yeah. as an artist. And I, we talked about this earlier. I was kind of left brain, right brain guy that yeah. that I, I wanted. I love to be creative, but I also liked figuring the business out. So I went to I went to forefront full time. We talked earlier about having been an artist, and now that allows you a special uh, knowledge and sense when it comes to running a country because now. You have to be thinking like an artist to like work a with artists, and that's a real advantage over uh, an accountant that comes in and and runs a record label. You know, 
I think so. Yeah. I, I do think so. And, you know, and the record business is a team business. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a team sport, if you will. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like baseball. You got to have somebody yeah. that pitches and somebody that plays first base and somebody yeah, that yeah. catches. You know, and, and forming a record company, my initial responsibility at Forefront uh, was creating all the products and the videos and the album yeah. covers and, you know. Uh, totally hands-on. Yeah, you know. and I did, uh, you know, manage the content from the artist. And uh, uh, I, I remember, I mean, a great story. I remember when Toby brought me Jesus Freak. Uh -huh. And Jesus Freak was a term back in my early days of, of being a Christian was a negative term. You know, if you mm. were if you were called a Jesus oh, yeah, freak, of course. Yeah. I mean, it you was a wacko. It wasn't something yeah. that people really enjoyed being yeah. called. And so he had written this song, more or less redeeming the term, which yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, and uh, I knew that that we would get we would get a lot of flack from it, plus a lot of attention from it. Yeah. You know, and so it was fun being a part of those kinds yeah, of yeah. decisions. I before. had uh, I was told something once, and I think the reason in running a company that I did so well at Capital, is a guy gave me some advice at the beginning. He said, everybody you hire under you, hire somebody that can take your job away. It's what you want. Yeah. Because it's what it, you want. Because all they do is they either push you to hire things or they make you successful and they move, you get moved up and they get moved up too, you know. So uh, I, I would tell my staff, Ken, I said, you know, if people aren't, trying to hire you away from me, yeah. you need to really think about that. You know, <laughs> about, because, about leaving me? <laughs> well, yeah, because you may not be the right person. Yeah, exactly. You know, because exactly. Uh, you, you want people that work for you, that that work with you, yeah. that push you, Yeah, you know, yeah. and and make you better at what you do exactly. at the same time. But it's right, like being a tennis player, they say you play up to the game with the player you're with or down to the game, you know, it, well, as interesting as DeGarmo and Key was and as successful that we were able to be for that 17 years, you know, it didn't even compare to the success that I enjoyed as a label executive. If you're one that's listening today, we hope you enjoyed hearing what we are saying. And I just encourage you with these parting words that who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Yes. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, yeah. or danger, or sore. Yeah. Hang in there. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed, please do, so you won't miss a single episode. And leave us a comment. And you can learn more about Ken and his books at Maine Mansfield, M-A-I-N, Mansfield.com. That's kind of an interesting it is. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. one. No ego there. There you go. <laughs> and if you want to know more about Eddie, it's pretty hard to remember eddiedegarmo.com. So if you can spell DeGarmo, you got it, eddiedegarmo.com. See you next time. <laughs>